1: Welcome to Upfront with Tony Cascarino and me, Sam Matterface on Talksport. This is the show that takes you into the world of the number nine as we find out what it takes to be a top-flight striker.
2: Cascarino, the little turn, and it comes back to Cascarino. Yes!
1: We'll discuss their career-defining goals, the experience of playing in France, and the feeling of when the ball hits the back of the net. <laughs> You're listening to Upfront with Tony Cascarino and me, Sam Matterface, on TalkSport. My guest today started life as a hairdresser but very quickly was picked up by Gillingham where he became renowned for being razor sharp in the penalty box. Success with Millwall followed before moves to Aston Villa, Celtic... Chelsea before a late flourish in France at Marseille and then Nancy an Irish legend famous for not really being Irish it's Tony Cascarino hello how are you how are you Sam um, how did you go from being a hairdresser to an international number nine
2: well I was doing hairdressing and I sort of took a break from football between sort of 16 to 18 and um, I wasn't playing on Saturdays or Sundays and I didn't think football. I'd I'd failed a couple of trials. Well, I'd gone along. I'd done okay, Sam, but didn't quite have enough. I hadn't physically developed enough to to be as strong as I was by the time I got 19-20. And from nowhere, I got offered an opportunity to play for a team in Kent League, which they asked me to play as a centre-half. And from there, very quickly, I established myself. And then one particular game, era from Belvedere away in the Kent League, um, our centre forward had a bad injury. And I got asked to play up front because the manager, who I'm still friends with today, Steve Wishart, um, said to me, can you play up front? I heard you played there as a kid and done really well. Would you play? Played that game, scored a hat-trick, and the rest was really history, Sam.
1: Um, it's interesting because I know that uh, that ground, Erith and Belvedere, it's a B and Q now.
2: <laughs> yes, like many teams <laughs> at lower levels, they're all been transformed into other things.
1: Um, and you were transformed into something completely different. Um, you became a number nine. And when you hear that phrase, the number nine, um, what does it mean for you? What, what's the sort of definition of a number nine?
2: I think it's obvious. It's a pivotal position. Um, so many iconic players in the game have been number nines. I never really was a true number nine until I got to the latter stages of my career. But when I got to Gillingham, I was very raw. My first training game uh, was actually against Steve Bruce, who was the centre-half for Gillingham. And we had a trial match, and Gillingham were watching me to see how I did, and I'd done really well. I had one particular header. I, I'd just headed over the bar, but put Steve Bruce on, the, on his backside with the header, with the power I got behind it. And Keith Peacock, who was the manager, said to me, I'll give you a year's contract. We'll see how it goes.
1: (laughs) And that was it, Sam. I sort of started from there. Um, Did you ever fight over getting the, the number nine jersey? Did that ever matter to you?
2: No, and that was a problem, Sam, because as I got further along in my career, there were so many selfish, brilliant number nines. And it comes to Alan! And what a superb finish! charging through
0: a chance here for Dixon. Oh, brilliant play by Dixon. He scored. In again. Olsen's in a bit of space on the far side. A an deflection. And a goal!
2: They were so selfish in the way they fought, But for the benefit of the team, Sam. Not, you know, they, they saw the whites of the post. They would score. And when they did see someone like Teddy would see things that he could lay you in, set you up, they were just brilliant at doing what they did. And no, I wasn't. I was too uh, selfless as a, a, a number nine. I I didn't have the courage or the desire to be a total ultimate predator, which I got later in my career, but I did think it held me back as a striker. And, and my goals tally, although that, if I look back and the numbers were good, it should have been far higher because I tended to be more of a leader of the line, not really think about goals as often, as. An, but the importance of being a goal scorer. You know, I grew up watching John Toshak, Bob Latchford, Joe Royal, you know, just to name a few great headers of the ball and great leaders of the line, but all got goals as well. And I didn't really have that same desire to get goals, which I certainly did later on.
1: What, why was that, do you think? You just you didn't have that personality. You weren't that sort of character that lived and breathed for the goal.
2: No, I I think John Aldridge played a big part in that, although I never really spoke to John Aldridge about it, is that John, and he wouldn't forgive me for saying this, he wasn't the quickest, he wasn't the greatest in the air, he wasn't the greatest technically, but he would get goals in, goals out. <laughs> He played for Liverpool Football Club. You know, internationally he could he could get goals. He, he you know, he scored goals in Spain when he went to Real Sociedad. And I could never f- work out why we'd play five sides in training. And John might not play particularly well, but walk off with four goals for his team. <laughs> and I realised that John had an incredible canny way of playing. He took the minimum amount of touches. I mean, one touch when it was on to score. He would very rarely control it. He would always try and do things immediately. And a lot of the strikers that I played with, Clive Allen definitely... I think Teddy would take a touch if he needed it at times. And just Kerry Dixon, it first time. You know, he just saw the opportunity, hit it, he would. And John was a bit of a turning point in my career because I did realise, Sam, that why did he keep getting so many goals? Why did he get goals in training? Why did he shank things that you think it was far easier to score? But he's never, ever lost the ability to get goals, John. Would you believe it? Cascarino, can he finish? No, he can't.
1: The top strikers that I've spoken to over the course of this uh, series have always shirked the idea of, of missing. It don't matter to miss. Missing is not important to them. They would miss yeah. 10 chances. Who cares about the misses? They knew that another chance would come and that they would bury it. You didn't have that, did you?
2: No, no, Sam. I, I think in my early part of my career, I got um, scarred by missing. Um, you could some way describe that a golfer can get the yips in front of, you know, in front of the hole from three foot, five foot. I think I was a period in my career that I was so affected mentally by Chances that I missed in the game instead of, like you say, you just eradicate it. You carry on. You wait for the next one. You try and take that one. And that's something that took a long process for me. I I got affected by reaction. by When I first played, when I was at gym, I was so raw, so naive, and yet it was one of my strengths. But that went away. The more established and the more experienced I became by my mid-20s, I hadn't – that had that all – you know that rawness of me had gone and now i was affected by what player i should be and how much of an impact i would have on my team so it, it changed as i went along
1: okay let's get a few quickfire questions from you to get a sense of who tony cascarino is uh, what was your favorite goal internationally
2: i th- i would definitely go against england started cascarino Graham Taylor was the England manager and he'd signed me for Villa the previous year. And I, Sam, it was really weird because I joined. And when I joined Aston Villa, I'm in Doug Ellis's house and I'm talking to Graham Taylor. And I asked him, if, you, if I come, will you still be the Villa manager? Because there was rumours of him getting the England job. And he said, no, I'll be Villa manager. And then eight to ten weeks later, he took the England job. So when I was getting warmed up <laughs> to go on and England were winning 1-0... He basically gave me the look of, don't you dare, you know, and I went on and scored a header uh, past um, Wood in goal. Um was a big moment for me, and I know that Graham Taylor was probably swearing. You know that famous scene of him swearing at the linesman about costing me his job? I'm, I'm pretty sure he's swearing at his assistants and staff saying, he couldn't bloody get a goal for, for Aston Villa when I was manager. You know, so that was a big goal for me. Club-wise, strangely enough, Sam... I would say a friendly against Juventus from Marseille. I scored two goals and they put their first 11 out. And there was a big crowd in Marseille. And I was playing against a, a guy called Kola, who was the German centre-half. And I played against him about six months before. And I was probably about six, eight pound heavier than I was that night. And he said to me after the game and shook my hand, he said, you are not the same player to, as you was six months ago. I really give him a hard time, and it realised that I'd become a proper centre forward by that time. Even though it was a friendly, and people might go, "How can you say a friendly?" That them two goals against Juve meant a hell of a lot to me, as about where I'd, how far I'd come as a footballer.
1: Who was your favourite strike partner?
2: Uh De- definitely Teddy, without a doubt.
0: And the ball breaks in Sheringham with a great
2: reaction. That's one one. If you wanted a perfect foil, and if you look at Sheringham and go. Look how many partnerships he had across his career, whether it's Klinsmann at Tottenham, whether it's Ferdinand, Shearer with England, and many more, Robbie Keane, Jürgen Klinsmann. Just honestly, his list of partners is extraordinary. And I think if you asked every one of us who played alongside him who was their favourite partner, I think probably nearly all of us would name Teddy.
1: Who was your childhood hero?
2: Well, Kevin Keegan originally, but as I become a, t- a team, because Kevin Keegan was the, being a Liverpool fan, Kevin Keegan and at the partnership, and I, I love Keegan, his work ethic, and just, you know, wasn't the most gifted, but ma- made absolutely maximum amount of his ability, but then obviously he went to Germany, and Dalglish was my ultimate hero because of what Kenny was, or the things that... Kevin Keegan didn't have, Kenny had, raw, natural ability. Um, And sort of a mix between the two, but probably King Kenny as my ultimate hero.
1: Which manager got the best out of you?
2: Well, Keith Peacock started with me at Gillingham and um, I had a bad injury at Gillingham, which kept me out of the game for about six months. Um, He was uh, very understanding of my development. Um, but if I took it on, I'd I'd then go to John Doherty that when I joined Millwall, he said to me, um, do you like a drink? This is his first meeting, Sam, in, uh, in his office. And I said, well, I'm OK. And he went, you know, you need to be fit to drink. And I went, oh, what do you mean? And he went, well, if you do like a drink, you need to be really fit to play for me. Well, I've got to say, after his training session, Sam, I knew exactly what he meant. He he would always call me Terry Herlock, and the goalkeeper Brian Horn. Come on, you three, we're we'll doing extra training after every training session. I'll say everyone, but any day like Tuesday before, you know, the, before the Saturday game, we had time to recover. But he'd always work as hard Tuesday and Wednesdays, all all three of us. And he he just went for me, knowing I had to be in peak peak condition. He argued with, he'd say, when you're a big centre forward, if you're slightly out of condition, you can look awkward and gamely. And you could, if you're not quite on the edge of your performance, you'll look cumbersome as a striker. And he was so right with me. And he finds Sherringham. That was Herlock. Cascarino. It's going to take plenty of
1: money to do it right, Some strikers are goal machines. Some set themselves targets. One former England striker who used to work with uh, Stan Collingwell used to say 20 league goals a season, that's the mark of excellence. Uh, and, and it's what you should strive for every season. Did you set yourself a minimum target?
2: No. Uh, like I said in earlier, Sam, that was probably one of my faults. I did that. I, I got, it got very competitive with Teddy, uh, sharing him at Millwall, because Teddy was the first person to make me feel like I was in a competition. And I, I took it the, slightly the wrong way uh, initially, but I realised Teddy was doing it to get the best out of you. You know, he was younger than me. I came as a two hundred thousand pound striker from Gillingham to Millwall with three years, probably more experience, and yet Teddy felt more experienced. And he loved competition. If you play him at golf, or you play him in others, anything else, if you had swimming, you know, you're in an a and you're in a swimming race, he'd want to beat you. And I think he tried <laughs> to make it competitive to get the best out of me. And that that is another thing that I learned along the way.
1: And Millwall was great for you, wasn't it? Promotion to the top flight, working alongside Teddy, 42 league goals in 105 games. Did it click because of your relationship ostensibly with him?
2: Yes, i watched Millwall the previous season when I was at Jennings. My contract was coming to an end and I watched Millwall a few times and I I saw Teddy play. He was alongside a lad called Michael Marks and... I just kept thinking he's so easy to play alongside because his movement and positions he took up in the pitch. When I first started, Sam, at Gillingham, I played up front alongside a guy that very few listeners will know called Mark Weatherly, and he was very similar to Ted. He wasn't the quickest, great ball control, really difficult to play against, leader of the line, playing little pockets, and and I was allowed to run the channels and get in behind and the spaces that were there because I was a lot quicker than Mark and Teddy. And um, that was why I felt I could play to, with Teddy uh, as a forward. And look, it's easy in hindsight because we would of course say we're, we're being smart. But it was just a joy to know that Teddy always wanted the ball. And he'd always, do you know one thing that stood out for me as well, Sam, as well? The talking of play. Ray Houghton was a great talker in the, on the pitch. And um, um, sometimes annoyingly, would drive you crazy. Just keep talk, talk, talk. Teddy was the same. Teddy would talk a lot when you were playing. He
1: hasn't changed, by the way. No, I know he hasn't. That's Ray's why he's... still the same in the commentary box.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's why you're doing great commentary, Sam, with him. Because... Ray's never short of a word. And Teddy never was on the pitch either. You always knew where Teddy was. You always knew how he wanted it. And even if he was having a bad game, Teddy was going to have a stinker because he never stopped wanting that ball and talking was... And again, that become another thing that I added, another string to my bow as I become a more experienced player is that how you talked and what you said when you were playing. And I think it's another asset that I think I got in my latter stages of my
1: career. What was the club like to play for in those days? What was the atmosphere around Cold Blow Lane? Because it was obviously a very different club to what it's like now. Feisty, Sam. I think,
2: you know, it's raw. Um, You know, obviously on the terraces, the the fans would be pretty outspoken if you had a a bad time. I can remember coming up out in one of my first games uh, for Millwall. I heard a Millwall fan, as you run through the tunnel onto the pitch, shout out, Sharon, get that piano off your back. And and I was thinking, wow, that's a young lad he's shouting that out to. You know, he's just on the start of his <laughs> career. And Chetty's laughed about that since, you know. And I remember Millwall fans giving me the donkey noise as I was, you know, literally three, four games in. And it was no, there was no breathing space. There was no, uh, he's just joined the club, see how he goes. It was immediate. And uh, so you knew what you were going to get if you were a Millwall player at that time. As much as Millwall fans could be fantastic, if you weren't playing well, Sam, it weren't going to be easy for you
1: we come from the same sort of area mm. uh north kent southeast london growing up in in the 90s you were sort of an ever present in the in the, the local papers in the national papers on tv everyone in our area talked about you the millwall star who goes to villa goes to celtic mm. ends up at chelsea did you enjoy all the attention that that brought uh,
2: yes i i did enjoy it sam but it's like all things if you're playing well and the game's easy for you and you're doing things on a quite a laid-back approach and everything's rosy, it's great. If it's not, um, which I experienced in other moves in my... You know, you're a Chelsea fan, Sam, and you know that I there was a time when I got a bit of stick. I can remember one of my funny experiences being a centre-forward and being on the bench and there was this guy behind the dugout near the tunnel and every time I got up, Sam, he would just go, Oh, no! Sit down! Not you. Except that. And I would be like, uh, I, but I remember thinking, please, man, like Ian Portfield, who was the manager, please don't ask me to get warmed up. This guy behind me is going to just jump on me. And he did it every time. And then one day, I cracked Sam. I just turned around and said to him, look, we'll have a word afterwards, after the match. And you know what? It wasn't in a way that we're sorted out with our fists or anything like that. I actually chatted to him and I said, look, I know you're giving me stick, mate. You're not doing me any fight, And he was actually an all right guy and he laughed at me and said, "Look." I'm doing it because you're not my favourite player. I'll be up front with you, but you are a tryer, son, and I'll give you that. <laughs> and it was like, but from that moment onwards, I didn't have this fan going to me every time I warmed up. Sit, sit down, Cascarino. No,
1: Portfield, what you're doing? You know, honestly. Uh, but funny times. I did but... have to sit, I, I did have to tell Dad not to go after that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know, Sam. But football's great. It's like all things. <laughs> when you're winning, and you everything's. Going along, spiffingly, and you're playing well. It's everything's easy. The moment you're tested, and I got tested at Celtic. I got tested at Chelsea. Villa was a little bit strange, but it. it
1: yeah,
2: I I I loved it at Villa. I, that period of a year and a bit at Villa, I really enjoyed it. It was just a massive transition from Graham Taylor leaving that football club, who I think would have got the best out of me because. Graham, like John Doherty at Millwall, his training sessions would have suited me because they were very tough and I needed my backside whipped regularly, Sam. That's what got the best out of me.
1: And he was direct, wasn't he? I mean, you know, let's not make any bones about it. Graham would would play direct and that would suit you, would it? Well, of course it would, Sam.
2: Look at me uh, with the Republic of Ireland. It suited me. You know, we had a team team of very talented footballers, yet we got things early. I had Dennis Owen on one side, I had Steve Staunt on the other, Chrissy Morris. You know, we had, Players who could deliver great balls: Kevin Sheedy, Ray Houghton. So uh, I, I wanted the ball in certain areas of the pitch. I wanted to be at the far post. I wanted to try and get on fullbacks, nod things back into a danger area, or if not, go directly at goal, lead the line. And I, yeah, you know, when I first made my debut for Republic of Ireland, Sam, I roomed with Frank Stapleton. And Now, when you go, you play for Arsenal and you play for Manchester United. That's a top player. That's a Van Persie. You know when you're you played for Arsenal and then Man United. So imagine for me in League One, which is which it is now, sitting my in my my debut for Ireland against Switzerland, and I'm rooming with Frank Stapleton. You know, so this is the quality I was looking at.
1: It's it's interesting, isn't it? It's sort of you know you look at back at a career and you can pick the bits out of it that you think should have been better or you could have done better. But ultimately, when you're it really at the time, it's incredibly different, isn't it? I mean, and, and that whole sort of like sliding doors moment of uh, Joseph Venglos, I think it was, who came yeah. in after uh, Graham Taylor. And, and Graham Taylor going off to England may well have changed the, the entire course of your career, really. Um, do you sort of... I know when we talk to managers about taking their first steps into the profession, they always say, pick your chairman, pick the best chairman you can find. For a centre forward or for any player... Is it about making sure you pick the manager that is going to get the best out of you?
2: Yes, I think all the best managers I've played under have really wanted me as well, which is important, Sam, because I, if I fast forward slightly, you mentioned Graham Taylor, Joseph Van and after Joseph Van lost his job, Ron Atkinson got the job. And the first yeah. day of being there, Ron said to me, um, you can go. And so, obviously, I wasn't Ron Atkinson's... T- the first meeting, the first... And I've spoke to Ron, uh, you know, years down the line. He his first conversation with me, and said, I've agreed to fee with Celtic. Uh, Southampton are interested as well. Uh, would you go? Would you, you know, you can go. You're not going to be... I'm bringing in Big Cyril. And, and that was it. And, and in some ways, I'm like, well, that's fair enough. He's been blunt and upfront with me. That's how it works. I'm, I'll take that. But you've got to be wanted. You've got to understand... Having a manager understands your qualities and trying to get the best out of your qualities... Is a big thing for a centre forward. You know, I take, you know, I watch the early days of Didier Drogba at Chelsea.
1: Here is Ivanovic into the area, works his way away from James, pulls the ball back.
0: Here's Didier Drogba!
2: He wasn't a, a certain starter from day one. He really had to fight no. for, with his you know, prestige at the club and for fans to love him to a level of what they did at the very end. You know, it took him quite a long time to, to get that, but the manager always stood by him, didn't he, Josie, for that period of time?
1: Yeah, and that was really important for him. Yeah. Um, you went to Celtic then, they came in for you. Uh, as someone who was playing for Ireland, I suppose that was quite a special moment, really. Did you think that after the situation with Villa, where it, it didn't work out the way you wanted it to, right, this is a restart, I can reset?
2: Yes, and I let my heart rule my head, really, with Celtic, because I it was the dream of an you know, the Irish number nine going to play for the hoops and going to Parkhead and the history of the football club. Unfortunately, the dynamics at Celtic were very different. Liam Brady was uh, a friend and obviously became the manager of, of Celtic. But there was a lot of underlining problems at the club. Um, obviously, Rangers were dominating Scottish football at that time. And there was a real inferior complex within the dressing room. I wasn't at my best physically. I, I was sort of recovering from a, an injury that I tried to play through. Didn't play well, Sam. It's probably the poorest run of games that I ever had at a club. You know, my performances at Celtic, I think I'd have booed myself, Sam, you know. I was It was that bad uh, how poorly I was playing. I didn't seem to... And it goes back to my condition. I was probably playing a 14-stone eight at Celtic, and I was always under 14-stone. And I noticed it. I just didn't feel right. And... And when you're not feeling right and your head's affected mentally and you're struggling, put all that into a cocktail, you are going to have a poor, poor game. You're going to play regularly, not very well. And I didn't. I, did. I just never really got going. I mean, I scored in the Old Firm derby against Rangers at Ibrox. Backman with the pass back to Cascarino. And equalises for Celtic. The break from the midfield called by Joe Milner. A lovely pass away to that far side to Tommy Coyne. Cascarino's through the centre. Coin find them, does find them. Oh, the ball just gets beyond Henry Smith. And that is Tony Cascarino's first ever goal in the green and white hoops. I scored against Hearts. I came on a sub a few times and scored goals, but I just never, ever played. The unfortunate thing for me is Celtic fans will see me as probably one of the worst players that ever played for their team. Well, if you judge me on what they saw, you'd agree with it. But I think they just never saw me at my very best.
1: You wrote in your best-selling autobiography, The Secret Life of Tony Cascarino, which is one of the seminal football books of uh, the generation, I think. So many different stories about how your personal life sort of intertwined with your football life. Did did it ever interfere and cause you a distraction?
2: Yeah, it did. I mean, when I was at Celtic, me and Sarah, my first wife, were having a bit of a difficult time and moved to Scotland, so it's all changed for her. She's a South London girl. Um, I wasn't playing. One particular day, her mum come up, Sam, and... Uh, Went and played a game and didn't play well. Come home, got sick. Me and Sarah were having an argument. And Sarah's mum turned around and said to me, Don't have a go at my Sarah, because you're playing rubbish. And it was quite weird. <laughs> my not to tell me, to tell me that. <laughs> um So, yeah, it, it was was an issue. And then obviously when I went to Marseille, I actually played really well, but I'd split up from Sarah at that time. And it, it, it's it's weird. But yes, I think. If I'm brutally honest, you need a very strong woman behind you, like in many things in life, and things have to work. Me and Sarah just – there was too many issues off the field that had had gone on, and I was mostly to blame for that. Um, But – it's that balance of not being, you know, like I think that... So Alex Ferguson talked about it. He wanted his players to be really sorted in their life and have their, their feet on the ground as a player in their marriage, in their, everything around their life to try and be perfect for them to be the best footballer. I never really had that all the time.
1: Still to come on Upfront with Tony Cascarino. He discusses how he bowed out of his international career in some style.
2: He's jumped up and then literally threw one on me, Sam, full on. I didn't expect it, but from there, it just went into carnage.
1: You're listening to Upfront with Tony Cascarino on TalkSport.
0: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter pretty litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness it's the world's smartest kitty litter go to prettylitter.com and use code acast for 20 percent off your first order and a free cat toy terms and conditions apply see site for details the premier league all access podcast is proud to be brought to you by ladbrooks there's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch with the latest odds, form guides, and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Staunton. Scarino up. Oh, it's down. Towards Staunton. There's no upside. Stoughton delivers the cross. Burn down!
1: Strikers are the kingpins, the man or woman who takes the adulation when the ball hits the net. They score the goals. They're on the back pages. They generate the headlines. There is another side to it as well. And there's a poignant moment in your book where you talk about the voices in your head, the overthinking that goes on, that Mm. ultimately... I think you believe prevented you taking more chances. The cross would come in and and there'd be something in your brain saying to you, You're gonna miss this, you're gonna miss this. Yeah. And it's do you know how debilitating that was.
2: Well, it was a lot more easy to understand after I'd finished playing because I spoke about it in my book and I can remember speaking to Sonia Sullivan, the great Irish runner, and she turned around and said to me, I had a real problem in my head when I took the lead in a race. I would think that I would fall apart once I took the lead. And I was like, wow, this happens to a top athlete. That's how I felt sometimes in games. There was a period in my career where I was not wanting the cross to come in on my right foot because it wasn't my greatest side. I didn't feel confident of getting a clean strike on the ball to score. And yeah, I I, I said earlier, Sam... There was a period in my career I can only describe as having the yips in my game. And that was in front of goal, which is as a centre forward, that's a pretty serious problem. You know, and of course, crowds get on your back and I don't convert a chance that they might seem quite comfortable or have to be a professional sportsman. You should be able to bury them quite clearly. Um, There was a game at Chelsea where a team were playing. We had a free kick out on the right, Sam, and the ball was played in and they all pushed up. And I managed to make a run and I found myself on the penalty spot all on my own and everyone had run out of the the team we were playing. So left me literally on my own, just the keeper in front of me. And I just headed it into his arms. Well, Sam... The reaction from the crowd was at Stamford Bridge was extraordinary. If they could have strangled me and run on the pitch, it was just. I remember that moment, that decision of as I'm waiting for that ball to come on me, I had an et- eternity to go take it on my chest, try and place it, and I chose to try and head it first time and literally head it into his arms. It was like as if I was a defender for the opposition who just said, Here, keeper, have it back. And at that moment, I. And that what was going through your me. mind? just that I knew I was on my own and it was a really split second decision instead of thinking right how do I deal with this how do I, do I take it down which I had plenty of time to do I did, I took the easy option which was to try and head it first time with just a nothing header and I remember thinking the negative of not having the thinking you know in my later later period of my career I remember thinking right got time get it on your chest get it under control and bury it but I didn't at that time I was I just didn't think like that I thought just just meet the ball and head it which wasn't the option
1: around this time you were still featuring for Ireland regularly I mean you had a brilliant Ireland career 14 mm. international uh, years uh, with the, a side that were qualifying for all sorts of tournaments that they, no one ever thought that they would be able uh, to do um 88 games loads of goals when the f- phone first rang what did you think?
2: Well, I never got a call because it always comes via the manager. Keith Peacock, who's the manager at Gillingham, had told me that I'd been uh, called up for an international friendly uh, against Spurs in the testimonial. And would I be interested? Because we had a goalkeeper called Seamus McDonough, uh, a, a lot of fans would remember, um, who was part of the sort of Irish set-up at, in particular times under Martin O'Neill. And he asked me about my... Irish ancestry and I'd said that I had an Irish mum blah 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 and so I got called up Keith Peacock told me and I went and played in a a game played really well uh, against Steve Wicks who was the centre-half that day Terry Venables was managing the opposition Uh, played well and then got called up for the first my first World Cup qualifier against Switzerland away, in a, the final stages of a group stage, which we we didn't actually qualify for uh, for the World Cup, but we um, we got games in, and I started my career with Republic of Ireland. It was just a it was a roller coaster ride for me, and many ups and downs because I had a bad injury that I didn't play for Ireland between Owen Hand losing his job, and Jack Charlton getting the manager's job.
1: Jack produced a great side of players who were, well, they were from everywhere, really, weren't they? I mean, Townsend, Houghton, yeah. Aldridge, McCarthy, none of them born in Ireland. But did you all feel Irish? Did, did, were you made to feel Irish?
2: Yes. Never one player that I can remember, and even the players you mentioned have never never said this. We were never felt unwelcome in Ireland. There was no grievance with us representing Ireland. It was just extraordinary. Jack decided to use as many rules as he could to get players in that he felt were eligible and capable and produced a really good side. And he also had a number of very good players who were born in Ireland. Um, So the mix between the two of us was harmony. As you know, Sam, you know a lot of players who played in that squad. We'll all tell you we got on incredibly well huge amount of characters <laughs> yes we did things and went a bit too far with the drinking at times but it was never ever we never left anything off that football field there was many games I played in and I just the character of the team and the drive desire to be a good side and and Jack was fortunate he had a lot of us at the right age uh, which he obviously didn't by the time his island manager's job was Come into question where he wasn't the manager by the time '96 come. He uh, had an extraordinary group of squad of players, some very very good ones in there. '90,
1: '92, '94, all great tournaments. Um, What was your favourite one?
2: Um, '90, uh, Italian '90, because I had a great qualifying campaign, scoring good few goals, playing well, leading the line, number one choice, going to Italy. Well, obviously, my Italian background. Um, it was just a joy. Uh, it was quite weird, Sam. We played Italy in the, last, in the last eight, in the quarterfinals. And I was leading the line, obviously, before the tournament started. And Viali was leading their line. And me and him were both subs. And I remember looking across to him. And I exchanged shirts with uh, Viali after the game. And I remember thinking he was the number one starter and Scalacci came about. He'd found himself being left out. I was a certain starter with Ireland, found myself a left out and on the bench. And people, you know, managers sometimes say Premier League football, you have five, six in really in different games you can be left out. International football, Sam, you can have two and be left out. You know, you. I went through England, which we drew 1-1. Egypt, 0-0. I was left out after that. After two games into a World Cup, Jack had decided to make a change.
1: You were... Massive in Ireland, and so was everybody else in uh, that squad and those squads over that period of time. But you eventually realised that you weren't actually eligible to play for Ireland. Mm. How did you find out?
2: Yeah, I was on international duty. We were, I think we were in Luxembourg, and I'd played about 66 times for Ireland, and we were told, by the next home game... We would have to produce all the documentation for representing Ireland and for our passports because we all had to play off an Irish passport. So, for me to get an Irish passport, I had to get certain certificates, you know, my mum's birth certificate. And I go to St. Catherine's House in London, get my mum's certificate, and on the uh, certificate, <laughs> what I've, she thought was her mum and dad wasn't, it was another name. Um, and that's when the ball started rolling of, you know, my mum was actually adopted. She had a sister that was, well, I say her sister, was actually her mum. It gets confusing, Sam. Lots of people get confused. I even get confused telling this story sometimes. But <laughs> she had a sister that was 20 years older than her, which she thought was her mum and dad, that now became her grandparents because she was the daughter of of what she thought was her sister. So that's how it all came about. So it was a massive challenge within the family because my mum had to come to terms with that, the woman that she thought was her sister for all these years wasn't actually her sister, was her mum. And that was weird for my mum to deal with. So it was a personal issue, more overriding, really, me representing Ireland and under the adoption laws. And when I spoke about it in the book, Sam, I I tried to tell it in the stories how I felt at the time. I felt I was a fraud and I felt I was a fake that like playing for Ireland. But obviously, after we went through all the, the rules and he was eligible, to, or I was eligible to play under the adoption laws. So my mum being yeah. adopted, my mum's called Teresa O'Malley, Sam. I mean, if you make it up, I mean, you couldn't get a more Irish name, could you?
1: <laughs> you um, your international career uh, ended with a four-match ban, a blood all over your chest and face, a scrap and a failure to reach Euro 2000. Now, that was a proper way to go out, wasn't it? What happened?
2: Yeah, we played Turkey and... It wasn't a, a nice... The first game in Dublin wasn't particularly great. We go there, it was nil-nil. We needed to get a goal to win the game uh, and qualify. And there was a few things that happened. There was a couple of spitting incidents with a central defender who spat at me a couple of times. And I thought... This was all in my head as the game's going on, by the way. If we go out, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to let this centre-half know and um, and I'd done a really quite a timid thing. As the game ended and they had qualified, that he went to run off and I, I flicked his foot. So he tripped and sort of stumbled and nearly fell over. He's jumped up and then literally threw one on me, Sam, full on. I didn't expect it. But from there, it just went into carnage, free for all. And I'm taking punches, trying to throw. And it was there was fans on the pitch. There was players. And this was all in the, in the space of a, a minute, two minutes max. And from a celebration it turned into it turned into a free-for-all on the football field. And I got obviously got a few trunctions on the head as I was going past the police in the tunnel going to the dressing room. It was all it was all happening, Sam. And um, I've still got that band today, so even if they called me up, I can't play. <laughs> <laughs> After
1: Chelsea, where it wasn't going as well as you'd hoped, and you've already outlined that, you've got the fabulous opportunity to go to France. And not just any club in France, but the famous Marseille. Now circumstances had changed there. But what went through your mind when that offer came? Well, I was away in
2: World Cup duty in 94. Glenn uh, spoke to me just prior to my final game in England, which was the FA Cup final, which you'll remember, well, Sam, losing 4-0 to Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, um, I cried that day. Yeah, and and as we were doing the... Uh, we still did the open top bus around Stamford Bridge after the game, and Glenn pulled me to one side and said, I'm, I'm keeping Nigel Spatman. I'm going to let you go. And then... I sort of went to the World Cup and thought I'd take my chances. I could have signed for Cheltenham. I'd said I wanted to wait to after the tournament to make my, my decision. Went um, uh, to America, started training, got injured with a thunderstorm, Sam, and we went from the uh, – because of the dangers of out on the pitch, uh, training with thunder and lightning going on, we went inside to a gym. I did the stepmaster, and I felt my calf afterwards. Trained the next day, pulled my calf muscle. And now I'm out of the the team really for a two or three week period. Saw a faith healer in America, trying to get my you know, I was trying anything to try and get fit, Sam. So but in that period I had a a number of faxes because that was coming through. Blackpool were interested. John Sheridan, who played for Sheffield Wednesday in Ireland, he laughed and said, Well, don't rule that out. There's a great big dipper ride in Blackpool, which, you know, was great fun <laughs> at the time. Uh, Mike Walker, who's the manager, I thought, of Everton, it wasn't, it was Mick Walker at uh, Notts County, was interested in speaking to me. So there were sort of two funny scenarios that developed. But I got the last life, Sam, because. Um, I got a fax through from Marseille and an agent, Dennis Rowe, Rowe uh, who you, you'd you know. Um, he said to me, Marseille are interested. And I showed this to the few of the boys and they were like, what, the European champions? No chance. They didn't know the circumstances around Marseille. So they were all laughing. Yeah, all right, you're going Marseille. Yeah. Um, but obviously I found out the details that so they have been relegated. Um, and there was a huge change at the football club. And I, I, remember going into the office for the first time to agree uh, to sign for Marseille. And I, as I was walking into the office, Sam, uh, Rudy Vuller was walking out, who was the centre forward, the German international, many people had known. He was walking out and said to me, good luck, Tony, and your, your type, you will love Marseille. And um, it was really weird that this guy that had won, you know, so much in his career, he was off from Marseille. But it was literally a blanket sale. You know, everyone was... Was leaving Sam, you know the all the top earners. They had to change. They could only bring in players for free transfers, and I was on a free. He, Bernard Tapie wanted an international, so that's how it all came about.
1: From the minute you arrived there, did you think to yourself, "This is this is going this is going to work"? And why was it that you were so successful there? What was different about it? Because it, I suppose it was a different sort of football playing on in, in League Two, as it is.
2: Yeah. um... Well, I was vulnerable in the dressing room. It was the first time I'd ever been taken out the safety net of a dressing room, Sam, where you've got your mates and you're all, you know, you're doing the things after game. You might nip out with the boys and you're one of the lads. Now I was vulnerable in a dressing room. I didn't really have, there was no click I was involved in. I was just quiet. All I had was con- concentrate on football. And do you know what, Sam? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because now all I can do is train and work hard and get myself in the best shape I can. And when the first game of the season came around, we got a penalty in the first half. I literally run and grabbed the ball. I wanted to show that I was, immediately that this was my intent. So I grabbed the ball, scored with a penalty. And then I just, it just snowballed. I, I got fitter, Sam. I, I played at Marseille. I talked about earlier in the show. I said to you, I played at Celtic at 14 stone eight. At Marseille, I was as low as 13 stone six. Now, It was the first time in my career I really knew I was a good athlete because I could run and run and run at 13 stone six. And as much as I'd like to paint it any other way, the problem with football in the 80s and certainly the early 90s in England was that so many of us were ill-disciplined off the field. We hadn't had the influx of foreign players coming to our game and teaching us, you know, the great habits of just your diet. We lived in a pub culture, most of the teams I've played for. If you listen to any players, Ray Parler will tell you stories and many other players. Ray will tell you, Ray Houghton tell you stories about the way we lived our life. I wasn't a player that could abuse myself. I couldn't get away with it, Sam. I had to be really serious about my profession, be dedicated, and that's what I did at Marseille. And I... I ended up playing. I think I'm the longest serving player to play in France than anybody else. I lasted nearly seven years of playing football in France.
1: Are you talking from an English point of view? The longest yes. serving Englishman in France? Yeah, I, or I don't. Irishmen. You
2: know, I, I set a few records out there. I'm talking an Englishman. Well, I'm not an Englishman, an Irishman playing in uh, a foreign country. I don't think anybody. No, John Collins played a few years there. Chrissy Waddle, uh, Glenn Hoddle, Mark Haley. I was. Best part of seven years in France playing football, which no one else did. I got the I'm um, the oldest hat trick uh, player in France of 37 years. Ah, and I was going to ask oh, you about well, that. Oh well, yeah, you know, still second to El Ted and I. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that was at Nancy, wasn't it? Because you went on to Nancy after you'd finished at Marseille. Yeah. And, and you scored that hat-trick at 37 years of age mm. in, in Ligue 1. So this is in the top flight in France. And again, the manager sort of devised a system that gave you a new lease of life.
2: Yeah. Well, let me give you a little bit of background about Laszlo Bolognese, who was a Romanian who won the Champions League... Uh, for Starbuckal rest in 86 against the famous Barcelona. Got a draw, one on penalties. When I joined the club, I joined Nancy at 30, nearly 34, Sam. I was 33, nearly, about 33 and a half. And when I joined, he said to me, uh, how long's your contract? And I said, two years. And he said, "Um, you'll play for four years under me. And I looked at him thinking, really? I'm nearly 34. Again, going back to the John Doherty scenario, he trained me like you wouldn't believe, Sam. So. It's the hardest training I'd ever done in my career. And he argued that this comfort zone of senior players, when they get to their latter years, they take the foot off the pedal, his idea was a complete con- contradiction because he said to me, you have to train harder than them just to keep up with them, the younger players. And when I first started playing, he said to me, I want you to play as my lone striker. And I was thinking, really? 33, nearly 34. You want me to be a – I'm dreading it. I'm thinking, no way. And he said to me, I'm going to give you the quickest two wide men you'll ever play with that you will just lead the line, you'll feed things on, and we'll get players running behind you. We have a great midfielder as well who can get beyond the midfielder and into the areas behind the back four. And I never felt I'd enjoy it, Sam, because I've always said to everybody who's been a centre forward, You'll never, ever like playing on your own. Every centre-forward I've ever known wants to have a partner. Partners are important to you to make you do things, get the best out of you, create chances. You need to get goals for them as well. And I found I really enjoyed the role. I never thought I would, Sam. I I was dreading this role of being on my own up front. And yet, I learned a lot about my game in that period of time under Laszlo Bologna at Nancy.
1: And the perfect hat trick is our little quiz right at the end of these uh, interviews that we were doing with our number nines to see how well you know yourself. Um, I think you'll remember quite a lot about your career, but um, yeah, yeah, Maybe that's the gambler in me. Um, Okay, so we've got three questions for you. Uh, Gillingham bought you from Crock and Hill, effectively, yeah, sort of. How did they pay the transfer fee?
2: Uh, well, track track suits and um cones and just equipment, Sam I mean, it's been exaggerated that story we know that most stories are exaggerated, but that really has, but um, it was done why why it happened, Sam was because I wasn't under contract with crocodile, and Gillenham didn't have to pay a fee, so as a gesture, they gave crocodile, which was much needed at Kent level. Equipment, tracksuits, balls. So that's how it will come from. And
1: 1993, uh, 94. Your last game for Chelsea was where?
2: Well, it was the it was the FA Cup final uh, against Manchester United at Wembley.
1: It was indeed. <laughs> um, your Ireland career ended in which Turkish city? We talked about Ooh. the scrap, but where was it?
2: Oh, is it? Yes. Was it in Izmir? Yes, i caught him out. Was it Izmir? Bursa. Ah, oh, Bursa. Yes. Oh, do you know, Sam, that journey in Bursa, yep. we, we got to go, we flew, considering it was a playoff game and the return leg of this playoff game, we flew to Turkey, Istanbul, then we got on a boat and then we got uh, on a bus. And the whole <laughs> journey took, imagine that we're planning quite short spaces of time. It took us something like 14 hours to get to Bursa. Uh,
1: no wonder you wanted a scrap afterwards. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Um,
1: <laughs> Listen. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you and great to look back at your wonderful career, your eventful career. Yeah. It's always great to, to look back. I mean, I loved I, I mean I before we'd even started talking properly, I'd I'd read the book and I was amazed by that. But to, to sit and talk to you about it has been great. So thank you very much for your time. Tony Cascarino. Cheers, Sam. Bye bye. You've been listening to Upfront with Tony Cascarino and me, Sam Matterface. And if you missed any of the show or want to catch up, you can listen back to the podcast from the Game Day feed, available on the
0: free TalkSport app. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18+, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,